The reading is taken from Mark chapter 4, verses 1 to 34. It's on page 1005 in the Bibles. So it's Mark chapter 4. The parable of the sower. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered round him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake, while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables, and in his teaching said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew and produced a crop, multiplying 30, 60 or even 100 times. Then Jesus said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop. 30, 60, or even a hundred times what was sown. A lamp on a stand. He said to them, Do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Consider carefully what you hear, he continued. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and even more. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. The parable of the growing seed. He also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself the soil produces corn, first the stalk, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it, because the harvest has come. The parable of the mustard seed. Again he said to them, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? 
or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed you plant in the ground. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants, with such big branches that the birds of the air can perch in its shade. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them, as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. This is the word of the Lord. Well, when Jesus was 30, he burst out onto the world stage and he um, had an astonishing display of miracles. Miracles of nature, the calming of a storm instantly, just by a word of command. Walking on water, feeding 5,000 that's 5,000 men. There were obviously their wives and there were obviously children there as present, all with just um, five loaves and two finished fishes. And then there were the miracles of healing, lepers instantly and completely cured before your very eyes, the paralyzed, the blind, the dumb, even the dead. And needless to say, he attracted an enormous amount of attention. The crowds that he attracted were phenomenally large. And you may wonder, just incidentally, how it was he managed without a PA. I mean, there are people who speak here who can't manage without a PA at all. You'd not hear them. And uh, this only seats 500. So how does he manage to talk to 5,000, 10,000, however many they may have been? Well... The Sea of Galilee is really in a bowl. The whole sea is a natural amphitheatre. And actually in certain parts, particularly on the northwestern shoreline of the Sea of Galilee, there are little mini amphitheatres, the way in which the hills are configured as such that what Jesus would have done would have rowed out in a boat about 100 yards from the shore and he would have spoken and his voice would travel over the water. It's much kind of... Uh, it's much more effective to speak over water than it is over land because your voice is reflected, apparently, much more. And then, of course, when it arrives at the land, the land is a kind of amphitheatre, rather like this church, and it is amplified by the surrounding configuration. So that's how he managed to do it. But you've not come here this morning to find that out. The miracles are very important. They enable people to be able to identify him. Who can control nature like this? Who can create out of nothing? Who can restore the genetically handicapped and the chronically sick so quickly and so completely? Who can raise the dead? Who can bring them back to life? Who is this that can do that? But in addition to enabling people to identify who had appeared on the scene, the miracles are also great visual aids. They were to illustrate what Jesus had come to do. They illustrate it physically, but behind all that lies a deep spiritual engagement. And what they saw had attracted so many to him. But it was what he had to say that was of greater importance. 
and hence the venue. He wants them to hear. But before we look at the parable and what it means, a few preliminary points. I suppose many people think Jesus spoke in parables because rather like we have children's storybooks, we think that it makes his message more accessible to people. That he tells these simple stories because he wants to communicate with the simple folk. Is that what you think? If it is, I'm afraid you're hopelessly wrong. Let's have a look at um, around verse 11. The, um, Jesus explains why he talks in parables. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that they may ever be seeing, but never perceiving, and ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. So Jesus speaks in parables because he doesn't want some people to understand what he's got to say. Now, why might that be? Well, the kingdom of heaven, the rule of God, is hidden. It is what's called a mystery. It's a secret. But God, at that particular point in history, is taking the wraps off. More of the kingdom of God, more of God's reality and, and his rule and authority over everything is being put on display for all to see. It's put on view by the appearing of God on earth in the person of Jesus. Now, if you see that, if you realise that, then you've got the key which opens the meaning of the parables. But if you don't recognise that God has appeared on earth in the person of Jesus, and that he does have an authority, and you do realise you're in the wrong with him, so if you don't, don't realise that he's turned up, if you don't realise you're in the wrong with him, if you don't realise that you need to uh, basically turn to him and submit to that authority, then actually the whole thing will become fuzzier and fuzzier and fuzzier. The truth about God is mediated, is communicated, is transmitted to us through a person, through Jesus. And unless we have turned to him, unless we're, as it were, in tune with him, on the right wavelength with him, the wavelength of submission and recognition of him, then we'll stay in the dark and we won't get it. And of course Jesus is talking a bit obliquely here because if he spoke it so starkly, he'd likely be in serious trouble with the authorities. So the key to understanding God and his plans for the world is by having the right attitude to Jesus. Now in this parable of the sower, Jesus is the sower, the seed is the word of God or the message of God, and the harvest at the end is the messianic harvest of souls 
at the end of time. So you have to see Jesus as the Messiah with the message to understand it. And if you don't, you won't get it at all. Now a couple of other things that we need to be clear about in this familiar story. And that is, first of all, some people say that a parable has only one particular point. And there is something in that. I mean, the 16th century Puritans, for example, one of them wrote a 600-page book on just the parable of the Good Samaritan, where the two denarii, for example, are the two sacraments. The 13th century Catholics were no better. They similarly allegorised the parable and they saw the harvest, for example, variously as the hundredfold were the martyrs who gave their lives for Christ, the sixtyfold being the monks who'd taken a life, a, a vow of celibacy, and the thirtyfold are the rest of us, the ordinary people. Now, needless to say, they went too far in allegorising this parable. But it is also too far to suggest that a parable only has one point, because actually, after all, this one, where it is, I think, the only one that Jesus gives an explanation to, actually clearly has four soils and four points of correspondence. So we see, first of all, Jesus tells the parable and then he explains it. So let's take a look at this parable. The sower goes out to sow his seed. Now in the United Kingdom, farmers plough the field first and then they sow the seed. But that was not how they did it in first century Palestine. You see, from about May to November, there is no rain in Palestine. There's just loads of sun and no rain. The rain comes in November and it can be quite a torrential downpour when it does come and it results in quite an, quite an amount of soil erosion and of course deposition because the soil's got to go somewhere. So picture it, those paths which have been hardened from about sort of September onwards when there is the harvest period when people would have been harvesting and people would have gleaned around the edges of the fields. Those hard paths are now given a fresh, fine covering of soil. Or the rocks which may have uh, stood out previously are now similarly camouflaged. And the seeds, the seeds which have um, been growing earlier in the year and had been blown around by the wind and kind of eaten and redeposited elsewhere by the animals. Who knows where those seeds now are in this field? You won't know until they've grown. And then there's the good fertile soil. But the key thing to notice is that it all looks the same to the farmer. To the farmer, it all looks like one field covered with fertile soil. The flash floods have deposited a layer of fine silt across the fields and he can't see what lies underneath and so he scatters the seed everywhere. Now through the parable, 
Jesus teaches us three things. The Bible, the Christian message, the biblical worldview, the word of God is the seed. It is the means of extending the kingdom of heaven on earth. In the New Testament, the expectation of the Messiah was that he would come with something of a fanfare. Israel's enemies would be justly punished. Israel would be rewarded and given the number one spot in the new kingdom of heaven on earth. Now with this parable, that expectation is amended. It's now more drawn out. There is the first and the second coming, and in between a period of time. The Messiah will come and sow the message of the kingdom. There'll be a time for it to germinate and grow. And then after an absence of time, the Messiah will return to view the results at harvest time. So what happens to the seed, the word of God? Now I should say here that we're not just talking about us as Christians spraying out sort of Bible texts, you know, at random. That's not what we're on about. No, we Christians have to read the Bible. We have to study it. We have to digest it. We have to apply it to our lives. We apply it by forming a biblical mindset. We have a Christian framework through which we evaluate everything. And then we engage creatively in dialogue and discussion, in debate with others on life, the meaning of, and on life issues. We engage and interact in the debates of the day be they at the school gate, the pub, the conference, the media, the university, the place of work, parliament. And we have to win that intellectual debate. We have to get to a position where people, even if they don't personally embrace the faith, have their lives shaped and fashioned by the Christian worldview but they will only embrace it wholeheartedly if they access it through a personal recognition and commitment to Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. And we've got to do that wherever we are, wherever God has placed us. Others have done it in the past, others do it elsewhere in the world, we need to do it again. And what happens if we do? What kind of response can we expect? This is what the parable teaches us. Well, unfortunately, there will be a lot of disappointment. Now, that's not what you wanted me to say, is it, really? To be honest, you wanted me to say something like, yeah, as soon as we share the truth, people all just embrace it. It's wonderful. But that isn't the case. there will be a lot of disappointment. We see it in the first three soils. There's the seed which is sown along what has been the path. And the birds come and they eat it all up. 
And the explanation is in verse 15. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. They hear the message, in other words. But like the hard path, which has just got a very, very, very thin superficial covering of, uh, of soil, their hearts have been hardened and they resist the seed embedding itself in their being. Maybe they've been hardened by intellectual pride. They think they are cleverer than the Bible. They think that through probably ignorance and a high degree of prejudice that they can rubbish it and their intellectual pride will not allow them to submit to its philosophy of life. They'll say, no way am I going to kind of, you know, follow that kind of simple stuff. Maybe, though, it's out of a moral pride. People love to hang on to their personal autonomy. They want to do what they want to do, and they're not lightly going to surrender their independence to anyone. Not even as anyone who is as attractive as Jesus, whose words have the ring of truth about them. You know, they are not going to do it. But of course it stops the word of God from taking root. And we read the devil comes and snatches it away. Now, Ouija boards, witches' covens, Halloweens are all tasteless, silly and stupid. But they are not the most powerful weapons in the devil's armoury. Prejudice and ignorance and peer pressure are perhaps his greatest weapons. He'll use every psychological trick in the book to discredit Christianity and to distract our attention. For example, people don't think of going to church to find the truth. Why? Because the, the image portrayed of the church and of Christians through the media is just so negative. They either think it's a place where people go and behave daft or they are absolutely dead as dodos. It's either boring or bananas. Whatever it is, it is not the place that you'd think of going. And yet, when people come across a real Christian, when they hear the Bible explained accurately, they are impressed. They're impressed with the person whose life matches up to the philosophy of life that they have gained from the Bible. And at the heart of it all is, of course, the person of Jesus. He is the philosophy of life. He is the attractive character displayed. Well, next there is the, um, there is the, uh, the second soil. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang out quickly because the soil was shallow. And when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. And the interpretation is given in verses 16 and 17. Others, like seeds sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. 
But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. People can be very easily moved, can't they? I mean, the animal excitement that there is of being part of a huge crowd, whether that's um, at a large football Premier League game or whether it's at some summer outside pop festival like Glastonbury, you know, people can be moved by the, just by being at something which has got a single focus and they can really get engaged with. They can be moved. Or think of the warm fuzzies you might get if you watch a particularly sentimental film. And of course, there is music that can hit the heartstrings like nothing else. And yet, that feeling can so quickly evaporate. Circumstances change, the adrenaline subsides, the intoxication fades. Any faith that there was evaporates. And then the third soil. There are the thorns, verse 7. Other seed fell among thorns which grew up and choked the plants. And Jesus explains uh, here. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word. But the worries of this life the deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. There are plenty of things to worry about in life. There are many variables which are outside of our control. We can become obsessed with them and leave God out of the picture. Riches, well, wealth is deceitful because it leads you to believe that you can control these uncontrollable variables. And so you do leave God out. And yet, of course, a moment's thought realises that we can't. I'm sure you, like me, know some people who are very wealthy and um, who have everything that money can buy. But when one of their loved ones gets cancer, they realise their vulnerability. They realise they cannot control that. It is outside of control. Money cannot buy immortality. Money is very nice. It conveys an awful lot of benefits. But it's got limited use. And its value has to be in perspective the desire for other things, anything that takes the place of Christ is unfruitful. It won't deliver. It will be disappointing. So, so much for the discouragement. Here's the encouragement, the fourth soil, because not all the sower's efforts are seemingly wasted. Some seed falls on fertile soil, it embeds itself in that soil, it germinates, it starts to grow, it puts down roots and it puts up shoots. It enjoys the rich mixture of the nutrients and the water from below and from the sunlight from above and it grows stronger 
and stronger until it's ready to bear fruit at harvest time. So, some application to sowers and to soils. And we're both. To the sowers. God's method for growing the kingdom of God is through the word of God, the message of the Bible, through which we meet Jesus Christ. We are to work hard at becoming familiar with it by applying it to the whole of our life and living it out creatively and engaging with others wherever we meet them. We don't know what the response is likely to be. We keep on sowing because we believe that some of it will turn out to be fruitful. It's hard work, it's exhausting, there will be many disappointments, but some will bear fruit. Some people will genuinely embrace the message and that will be an enormous encouragement both to us and enormous benefit for them. And what of the soils? Which soil are you? Go on the internet, there's always kind of things popping up saying, you know, do this little sort of psychological test, it'll tell you this, that and the other. Well, here's one from Jesus. Which soil are you? Are you somebody who's very new to St Mary's? You've come along, you've heard the Bible explained, you respond positively to what you've heard on a Sunday, what you may have engaged with during the week. It has the ring of truth. But by the following Saturday, it has been drained out of you through life. It has come, but it has gone. It's been snatched away. Or have you, um, in fact, actually been here a bit longer, responded rather more positively, and you think, yeah, this all makes sense. This Jesus is for real, and you get stuck into the Christian community. But even so, it is still superficial. It is, as what one of you once said to me about a particular church, it's Christianity by osmosis. Now, I knew that's something kind of scientific that I had heard of at school, so I had to look this up. Osmosis is where you have a solution, a solution of molecules, and it moves through a semi-permeable membrane into an area where there's a higher um, concentration of those molecules. And the effect is, of course, to dilute the host uh, solution so that each side of the membrane actually balances out. So the unbeliever responds positively, moves into the church, but doesn't change themselves, but rather they change and dilute the church because there is no depth and there's no rootedness. Or then maybe you're the third soil. Those in this category can actually exist for a very long time in the church. All look good. A promising start, 
even some degree of rootedness. But over time, the faster growing weeds spring up. They cut off, cut off the nourishment from beneath, and they cut off the light from above, both vital for growth. These things Jesus calls the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things, and they choke the word and make it unfruitful. It is good to aspire and use our God's given talents to the full. It's good to earn enough to provide for your family and to not be a burden on the state. And it's good to desire the good things in life, but none of them should take the place of Jesus. The attitude that we should have was expressed by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. And that attitude means that we are the fourth soil, the fruitful soil that actually bears a harvest. And fruitful can be understood in two ways. Fruitful in the sense of fruit of the Spirit, in other words, the character transformation that having Christ deeply rooted in our lives can bring, but it could also mean fruitful in the sense of reproduction, of multiplying, helping others to enter into the kingdom of God through recognition of Jesus. Of course, in agriculture, you can't change the soil that you are, but you can in this parable. You can shift. If you recognise that you're one of the first three, you can think, right, I haven't quite yet made it. I must be completely committed to Jesus Christ, to recognise his authority and allow him to embed himself in my life and change it. You can move from the shallow soil, from the soil which... Um, is kind of distracted and frustrated by other things in life to the deeper soil. And that's what he hopes that we do. And if we do, that's where these other parables come into play, quite frankly. There's the parable of the lamp put on a, on a, on a stand. You don't hide light under a bowl, do you? No, we, if we are the deeper soil, then we are to be lights in this world, to illuminate to enlighten others. We're to sow the seed. That's all we have to do. God does the rest in the parable of the growing seed. He enables it to grow. And it may, you may think it's incredibly small, my little contribution of being able to just give a brief explanation of the Christian faith and applying it to life. You might think it's terribly small, but it's changed the world. I mean, just think, in uh, 150 years ago, there were no Christians in Korea. There were no Christians in most of sub-Saharan Africa. And yet, many of those countries, the Christian community is in the majority now, in just 150 years. Or if you think within the lifetime of many of us, when people of my age were born, the missionaries were all kicked out of China. And yet, 60 years later, I don't know, over 100 million Chinese are Christians. 
We know that from those who've been sent here from their countries to work or to visit. You know, we have engaged with them. We've seen some come to faith. We saw recently someone who was visiting us who was delighted that God had led her to a church of believers. So it does work. It has stood the test of time. We have seen how the message of Christ transforms people's lives, their thinking, their character, the way they live out their life, and it will give them, in the end, eternal life. And if we're believers, we have a part to play in that. Amen.